evening crowd. How many of you were here this morning? Wave at me, would you please? Thank you for coming back. How many of you are joining us tonight? Would you raise your hand, please? We're glad you made it. And uh, that's good. I'm excited about the next couple of days. Let me say just personal word, if I may, uh, about Monday and Tuesday. I, I really mean this. I love your pastor's heart to encourage other preachers. Uh, I grew up in a preacher's home, and um, pastors especially have a lot to deal with. And uh, there's, a, there's an intensity to the work, but right now there's a real intensity to the spiritual warfare. And uh, being around other preachers is good. But being around a church full of joyful Christians is better. Now, I'm speaking from experience. I like being around preachers. Don't get me wrong. But when I can get in a church family that many times I don't even know them, but I sense the joy of the Lord, worship God with them, uh, they speak a word of encouragement, it just it does something for my soul. Now, why am I telling you that? Because Brother Yoder and I are going to get to preach to these men, and I'm glad about that, but it may be that the greatest ministry that goes on Monday and Tuesday is the love that this church family will show to the preachers that are coming. And uh, I just want to encourage you to encourage them. You, you have no idea what sometimes a smile and a, a brief word, uh, tell me your name, I'm going to write it down so I can pray for you and your family, what that means to a preacher. And uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking now about those years, my dad pastoring, and we went through some battles uh, everybody goes through battles. And I remember one of the seasons of ministry, I was just a teenager. My dad was dealing with a devil, not the devil, a devil. How many of you know the difference? And, uh, the devil's got minions, you know, <laughs> the hounds of hell get turned loose sometimes and, and the critics and cynics and people trying to cause division. And he was dealing with some of that. And in the middle of that season when, and I was a teenager, I was a young preacher, but I was watching. And in the middle of that season, there was a man and his wife at our church up in years. I'll never forget it. Uh, Brother Miss Mills. Uh, he was an old World War II vet. He was a woodworker and uh, greeted at the front door. Mrs. Mills made the greatest peanut butter pie that ever existed on the planet. And uh, that's right. That's how I felt about it every time she made it. And they made it their personal business to encourage my dad and mom and me and my sister. And I, I'm telling you, I'm a 47-year-old man serving the Lord. I do not know if I would be in God's work today or if I would have wanted to have been in God's work if it hadn't been for that precious couple. And so I'm saying all that to say, the next couple of days, try to be around, be prayerful, be joyful, be encouraging, and let the Lord use you. And I know many of you have given and prayed, and I just I want to say, God bless you. Your labor's not in vain in the Lord. Now, we saw a glorious thing this morning. You know, when you see one sinner saved, that's good. Can you agree with me on that? Yes? But when you see numbers of people coming to profess faith in Christ, I told someone before church, I'm always very aware in meetings where you see that kind of thing. That was not my sermon that did that. That somebody in this room, I don't know who, maybe, maybe not even in this room, maybe some dear saint of God that's shut in and can't even get out, and come to the meeting house, but somebody somewhere has been praying, and many people have been working. And then you come to a day like today, and you see a great harvest of souls, and <laughs> isn't it wonderful? It's just glorious. Now, how many of you would like to see a whole lot more of that? Would you raise your hand? I'm glad, because I want to show you how that happens tonight. Would you go back with me in your Bible again to the book of Philippians, to Philippians chapter 1? And I'm going to read these opening verses that we studied together this morning in the two meetings that we had again, and then I'm going to keep reading. And we're going to come down to our text, and I want you to get a pen handy, if you will, so you can mark a few things in your Bible. Philippians, what a book it is. Look at Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. If you didn't do this this morning, would you mark the word joy in verse 4 and the word gospel in verse 5 and connect the two in your Bible and in your thinking? Everybody says Philippians is a book about 
Christian joy. I want to back up one step from that and tell you that Philippians is a book about the gospel. This is very important because you don't get joy by trying to have joy. In fact, <laughs> I tell you that some of the most miserable human beings I've ever met in my life are people who are trying to be happy. You know what I'm talking about. They're trying to find joy. Joy is never the goal. Joy is the byproduct. You don't chase joy. You pursue Christ. And when you get Christ, he brings his joy into your life. I'm talking about joy that the world cannot give you and circumstances cannot take it away. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love and what? Joy. So it's fruit. It grows. You don't produce it. God brings it. But the joy is connected to the good news. Now keep reading. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Let me just pause here for a moment and say a word to this church. God has begun something really marvelous in this church. I mean, I sense it. I'm in hundreds of churches, hundreds of them. And uh, frankly, some places you go, and it's like raising the dead. You want to preach on Lazarus, come forth every sermon, you know? But that's not the case here. God is at work among you. Don't ever take that for granted. Don't ever just assume or presume that's going to go on and on. But here's what you can do. You can believe that if you'll be the people God wants you to be, you can rest in this confidence that the same God who set all this in motion is going to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. I love this. So he begins it, he continues it, he completes it. And then you come to verse number 7. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. That is a tender expression. It's not what I'm preaching on tonight, but that's powerful. Look, people, you're in my heart. That's what Paul said. You're in my heart. You know how you get people in your heart? You get Jesus in your heart. When your heart is full of the love of God, you start seeing people like God sees them and loving them like God loves them and thinking about them like God thinks about them. This is not natural. I'm just going to tell you, this is not natural. This is supernatural. In fact, Paul's in jail. He's in Rome. He's in prison. Wouldn't you think the first words he would pin was, I'm having a hard time. You all pray for me. Instead, it's, I just want you people to know, I've been thinking about you. I've been thanking God every time I think about you. I've been praying for you, and I have you in my heart. I'm just going to tell you, only the love of God can do that. Have you in my heart? Now, keep reading. That sounds good. It doesn't end there. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. We'd like to live in the first part of verse 7, not the second part of verse 7, you know. I'd like to be in your heart, Paul. I don't want to be connected to your bonds, if it's all right with you. I'd like to enjoy the fellowship in the gospel. Remember back up in verse 5, the fellowship in the gospel? Everybody loves the fellowship. People say, oh, I just love the fellowship in our church, and I love, people love the warm, fuzzy feeling, you know? But I just want to remind you that with the fellowship, there's also a fight. See, some people want all the blessings of the gospel and the good things of the church, but they don't want the friction that comes when you try to move forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's inevitable. Now, you marked already today in verse 5 the fellowship in the gospel. I want you to mark in verse 7 the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Then come to verse 12. But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me, how many of you know things just happen to you sometimes? You don't make them happen. They just happen. And they're not always just the best things. Sometimes they're tough things. He said, the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather, oh, I love this, unto the furtherance of the gospel. So in verse number 5, you've got the fellowship in the gospel. In verse 7, you've got the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In verse 12, you have the furtherance of the gospel. Come down to verse 17. He said, the other of love, knowing that I am set for, and he repeats this expression, the defense of the gospel. This is a military term. To stand fast, to be strong. The defense of the gospel. May I just 
reminds you that everything God ordains, Satan opposes. And if God is blessing, do not be surprised if Satan starts fighting. As happy as we are that all those people got saved this morning, do you think the devil's glad those people got saved this morning? No. As thrilled as we are to get to host these pastors this week and invest in them and pray over them and encourage them, do you really think that Satan is glad that some of the Lord's gospel laborers and servants are going to draw some strength and courage from that. You better believe the devil's going to fight against all of that. There must be the defense of the gospel. And then come down to verse number 27. It's woven through the whole passage. Do you see it? It's in the DNA of Paul. It's woven through the fabric of the letter. Look at verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. There we are again. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for what, church? The faith of the gospel. How many of you get the idea that the Lord's trying to tell us something? I mean, look at it. You got verse 5, gospel. Uh, you have verse 7, gospel, verse 12, gospel, verse uh, 17, gospel, and verse 27, gospel, gospel. How many of you think gospel is kind of the theme of this whole thing? Because the joy grows out of the gospel. See, the gospel is not just good news for lost people. It is if they hear it, but it's good news for God's people. Sometimes I think we just need to back up and preach the gospel to ourselves again. Now, let me tell you what will help you be a better witness. You want to know what will help you be a better witness? Tomorrow morning when you get up, look in the mirror, you know, before you get your first cup of coffee. You know who I'm talking about. Look in the mirror and say, you are a dirty, rotten, hell-deserving sinner, and God loves you. And Jesus died for you and rose from the dead and lives in your heart. And wherever you go today, Jesus is going with you. I'm just going to tell you, you start preaching the gospel to yourself that way, you'll be much more ready to preach the gospel to somebody else. And I love the fact that Paul is bringing himself and these people back to the glories of the gospel. And not just to the glory of the gospel, but to the responsibility that we have in the gospel of Christ. See, with every good thing that God gives us, there's a certain responsibility that God gives to his people. And so for a few moments tonight, I want to talk to you about the offense and the defense of the gospel. Uh, years ago, I heard coaches say that the best Defense is what, church? A good offense, right? They meant by that if you keep scoring enough, you keep the ball in your hand, then the enemy, the, the other team, the opponent, doesn't have the opportunity. And I think there's some truth in that. In fact, I believe one of the reasons that God really blesses a church is that that church is in tune with what he is trying to do in that community and in the world. And frankly, sometimes churches get distracted. Good people, God's people, take their eye off the ball, get involved in lots of other things. And after a while, they're not really trying to get the gospel to the lost. Oh, they want to see people saved. They even raise their hand and pray for lost people. Uh, they, they may even have gospel tracts in the lobby of their church. But they're no longer passionate and pioneering about the, getting the gospel out. They've settled into a maintenance mode, and they are, pardon the term, just having church. And they still assemble, and they sing their hymns and listen to sermons and pat each other on the back and say, God bless you, and use all the nice religious cliches. But something, something has been lost. Would you like to know what has been lost? It is the passion to get the gospel to everybody while we still have the opportunity. And I want to tell you what this church is here for. God didn't put this church here so you all could meet a handful of times a week. God put this church here as a gospel preaching station to get the message of Jesus to everybody in this region that you possibly can get the message to. This is the work God has given us to do. And there's a, there's a defense side of it because the enemy is going to attack. That doesn't mean we walk around on the defensive all the time, but we're watching and we're vigilant because we know Satan's going to try to stop it and thwart the plan and purpose of Almighty God and rob God of glory, and we don't want that to happen. But on the reverse side of that, there's an offense that we must be on. In other words, we've got to stop being so everlasting passive, and we've got to get more aggressive about getting the gospel to the lost. See, the Great Commission does not say build a church building 
open the doors and let all the lucky sinners come find you. That's nowhere in the Bible. Now, the Great Commission is go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And I'm sharing tonight my heart with you. This is what God has given me to do. Somebody said, well, that's your job, you know, to preach the gospel and get people to say, no, 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 no. That's not what I believe. See, if everything reproduces after its own kind, then an evangelist ought to produce other evangelists. A Christian witness ought to produce other Christian witnesses. When I leave a church, I'm not just wondering how many new believers am I going to leave behind. I'm wondering how many new witnesses am I going to leave behind. If all we do is have a meeting for two or three days and it dead ends at that, we're wasting our time. Let's, let's just pack up and go home now. I'm wasting my breath. No, no. We must pray that this meeting, this emphasis, will set in motion something for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thinking now not what goes into a meeting like this, but what will grow out of a meeting like this. May I tell you what I'm praying for this church? I'm praying that this church will get a fire lit in it. By the way, that didn't happen collectively without it happen individually. A fire lit in it to say, you know what? For everything we are doing to get the gospel to the lost, we're going to turn it up a notch, and I'm going to personally pray and ask God, Lord, use me to get the gospel to somebody while I still have opportunity. This is an amazing crowd on a Lord's Day evening, but just imagine what would happen this year if every sincere Christian in this room right now could see one person brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you are glad you're going to heaven? Who are you taking with you? When you get there, who will say, that man led me to Jesus? That woman prayed me to God. That family lived on our street and adopted us and made sure we heard about the Lord. Now, those people, they stayed on our case till we came to the meeting and heard the message of Jesus. They, they showed us the love of God. The hymn writer said, must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? And I fear that far too many churches have gone into maintenance mode. They've gone into only the defensive posture. I'll remind you, Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. You know what that presupposes? That we are charging against the gates of hell. Jude says, pulling them out of the fire. In other words, we must say, by the grace of God, we're going to do what we can to get the message out and to bring people in. Somebody said years ago that the Word of God is like a caged lion. You don't really have to defend it. You just got to open the cage door and it'll take care of itself. I believe that. Let me tell you, the gospel is powerful. You don't believe me? Look what happened in this place this morning. Look what's happened in your life. Look what's happened in my life. And here's what I believe. If we could just get the gospel out, the Lord by His Spirit will do the rest. Somebody said to me recently, they said, and I'm not against this, I'm not on a crusade against it, but they said, I really like apologetics. I enjoy listening to, to apologists, you know, answer all the questions and debate and, and uh, debate an atheist and debate an evolutionist and on and on and on. Can I tell you what I believe? The best apologist is a spirit-filled witness. If the best defense is a good offense, the best thing you can do is not figure out how to answer all the questions. The best thing you can do is simply tell the story of what Jesus has done in your heart and what God's grace means in your life. Can't argue with that. How can you speak against the joy of Jesus that the gospel produces in a man's heart? Years ago, I was coming back from Salt Lake City, Utah. Actually, another city and flown through Salt Lake City and connecting, flying to Tennessee and I got on a plane and sat down, and a very fine, well-dressed businessman got on and sat, sat down next to me. I was young, really young at the time, and he was older than me and very educated, very articulate. I could tell that, well-dressed. And I was a little intimidated. And I tried to strike up a conversation with him about spiritual things, only to find out that he was an elder in the Mormon church. And now I'm really intimidated. And in my mind, I'm trying to go back. I've studied what they believe, and I'm thinking now, all right, what's he going to say, and what questions he going to ask, and what, what argument he's going to get into, and, all, and, and the Holy Ghost just stopped me. You ever had the Spirit of God just stop you? I'll never forget it. And the Holy Spirit said to me, tell him how you got saved. Just tell him what Jesus has done in your heart. And I remember I said to that man, I said, could I tell you my story? Could I tell you how I came to faith in Jesus and how I came to know who Jesus is? He said, oh, sure, sure, I'd love to hear that. 
And I started just telling him my story, simple, just really simple. The man sat there for nearly 20 minutes and just listened. And when I finished, I wish I could tell you he got saved. He didn't make a profession of faith at that moment. I'm praying I'll see him in heaven someday. But when I got finished, I'll never forget what the man said to me. He looked at me and he said, sir, he said, I have been around religion all of my life. And he said, I have never heard anything like what you just explained to me. And the Holy Spirit said to me, maybe if you stop worrying about what they're going to ask and what you're going to say and just give them Jesus and tell them what the Lord means to you, I could work through that. Are you a gospel Christian? I'm not asking if you believe the gospel. Are you a gospel Christian? Does it define your life? Does it define what you're going to give your energy and resources to this week? Is this really a gospel church? Is it a place from which the gospel is going out in power and people are being saved? It can be. It must be. But we must recommit ourselves to the defense and to the offense of the gospel. So what does that look like? Well, let me give you three thoughts tonight, and they come from these verses that I had you mark in your Bible. All right? Let's start with verse number seven. He said, we're your partakers of something. So number one, I want you to write down that we are partakers. Now, last evening, Pastor and I had Mexican food. That, that was good. That was glorious. I think they're going to feed it at the marriage supper of the lamb. I'm looking forward to it. And we, we shared a basket of chips and salsa, and, and I think I partook of more than he partook of, but we were partakers. We were, we were in the same dish. We were, we were breaking bread together. We, we understand to be a partaker of something means that, that we're one in this thing. Well, look at the verse. Everybody look at verse number seven. What are we partakers of? We're partakers of the gospel. We've all believed the same gospel. Look, if you're really saved, I'm not assuming everybody in this room is saved. But if you're really born again, you are not born again because of who your daddy is or how many years you've been in church or the fact you got baptized. If you're really saved, you are saved because you believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Lord came to live inside of you. We're partakers of the same gospel. And then look at the verse. We're partakers of the grace of God. I like that, don't you? And so needs of my life, needs of your life may be different from day to day. But we have the same God, the same gospel, and we are recipients of the same grace, God's grace working in me and God's grace working into, in you. May the grace of God be multiplied in your life. But don't miss this. Look carefully at verse number 7 because it's not just all, all that. He said also, in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We are not only partakers of the same gospel and the same grace, we are partakers of the same great conflict. Do you understand you're living on a war zone right now, an active battlefield? I was watching a news report the other night from the Middle East, and the reporter was, was reporting from behind enemy lines, and he was, he was embedded with the troops, and there, there's ammunition going off around him and bombs exploding in the distance, and I thought, my soul, I can't imagine putting myself out in the middle of that mayhem and that mess, not a soldier, just there in the middle of it. Let me tell you something bigger than that. At this moment, you are engaged in the greatest conflict in the history of the world. It is the great conflict between God and Satan, between light and darkness, between heaven and hell. And at this moment, we are all engaged in that same great conflict. Some people are suffering around the world. Tomorrow evening, I'm going to tell a story about one of my best friends with Jesus now, died for his faith. Now, you don't hear about that much anymore. But there are, at this moment, around the world, people in prison because of their faith in Jesus. There are people who are suffering greatly. There are people who've died for following Christ. You know, I think we're going to be pretty ashamed when we get to the judgment seat. And we, and we, we stand next to the martyrs. And we look Jesus in the face and have to explain why we were so cowardly because our culture was pretty difficult, you know. God forgive us. God help us. Somewhere we must realize that though we may not all suffer equally, we are all engaged in the same spiritual warfare. If you're going to advance the gospel, this is war, friends. This is not just work. This is war. And it will be a spiritual battle. It will not be easy. I've learned myself, days like today, before a day like today, as a general rule, I have some great struggle. I can't explain that to you. You know what I'm talking about. 
Uh, but I'm in meetings week after week after week, and people have prayed and brought lost people. And I can't tell you the number of times I've sat on the front row of a church building somewhere, struggling in my mind, struggling in my heart, uh, engaged in inner turmoil and conflict, dealing with some distraction, and, I, and I'm learning something. I'm learning that that's not just circumstantial or emotional. Very often, that is spiritual because hell is pushing back against what God is trying to do at that moment. We must all understand we are partakers. Look, we're members of the same body. Let me just show you something. Hold your place here, okay? Don't lose your spot. Hold your place here. Go back a few pages in your Bible to 1 Corinthians, would you please? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, let me show you a verse or two that I think will help us. We're members of, of something. We belong to something. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. There should be no schism in the body, literally no division. Let no division come in here. But the members should have the same care one for another. See, this is what makes a church really a church that Jesus wants. He said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples when you have love one for another. So the care for one another. Now look at verse 26. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Do you understand we're connected? We're connected. You're connected to me, and I'm connected to you. I hope I get to see you again. But I'm conscious of this in my travels. Many times I'm in a place, and it will be the only time in my lifetime I'll ever be in that particular place. I hope to be back here someday, but I may not. I may go to heaven before then. Jesus may come before then. You may be gone before then. We'll never meet exactly like this ever again till we get to heaven someday. But we're connected to one another because we belong to members as members of the same body and we have the same head. We have Christ in common. And because of that, we are partakers, not just of his blessings, we are partakers of his sufferings. Remember that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the what? Fellowship of his sufferings. And so number one, we're partakers of something. Go back now to Philippians chapter number one. Let me show you a second thing we are. Now look at verse number 12. He said, I, I wish you'd understand this. May God give us some spiritual understanding right here. That the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. That's easy to read that, hard to live that. Did you know that? Because the things that happened to him were not pleasant. He got arrested and he's in bonds. Look at verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Every time I read this, it blows my mind. Do you understand God loved the people in the palace too? Do you know who was in the palace? Some of the most wicked, immoral, idolatrous people on the face of the earth. And I just want to remind you of something. God loves them too. You know, even the people that you get agitated with and aggravated with, I'm talking about the people you watch on the news and you think, what's wrong with these people? I'll tell you what's wrong with them. They don't know Jesus. And when you reject truth, you believe lies. And when you say no to light, you go deeper and deeper into the darkness. And God orchestrated it so that instead of Paul standing somewhere preaching to the church at Philippi, he is sitting in prison so that in that prison he can preach the gospel and the people in the palace can be saved. Somebody said, did it work? Look at the end of the book. Flip a page. Would you come to chapter 4? He's closing now. Look at verse 22. All the saints salute you. Everybody remember the saints this morning? All the saints? He said, all the saints here salute you. Now look at the end of this. I just want to stop and say, thank you, Jesus. Chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Hold on to your seat just a minute. Some of the family members of Caesar got born again. You're not just going to meet believers from Philippi in heaven. You're going to meet believers from Caesar's household when we all gather around the throne of God someday. And do you know how it happened? through the divine providential work of God allowing circumstances into Paul's life. Some of you right now, and I have no idea who, but some of you are dealing with things right now you would never have chosen for yourself. You don't like them. You're trying to figure it out and fix it. You're trying to change it as quick as possible. And I want to say to you, as it ever dawned on you, may the Lord give, you, give us all spiritual understanding right here, that the things that are happening to you right now are not about you. They're about those God wants to reach through your life. We even get selfish about our Christianity. 
We start actually thinking that everything that happens to us is all about us. No, brother. No, sister. Many times what God lets into our life is not just for us. It's for somebody else if we'll respond the way we're supposed to respond. And so here's the second thing I want you to write down. Not only are we partakers, but number two, write down, we are partners. Paul's writing to people that are a long ways away from where he is, but he considers them partners in the gospel. Work requires partnership. Warfare requires partnership. We're a band of brothers. We're fellow soldiers. We're fellow laborers. In what? In the gospel. Notice some things that we partner in. Everybody look at it, would you please? First, we're partners in faith. He calls them brethren. How many brethren are here tonight? Any brethren and sistren? Say, so what are you talking about, preacher? Family members. I hate to tell you this, but we're going to spend a whole long time together at the family reunion really soon. You're getting ready to go to the biggest family reunion the world has ever known at the Father's house. We're going to spend eternity together at the Father's house. But watch this. Here's one thing we're partners in. We have the same father. We have the same faith. We're brothers. We're sisters in Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means God has made it so we're supposed to be working together, not pulling against each other. We're supposed to be working together to help bring other people into the family of God. Look at the verse again. Not only are we partners in faith, but we're partners in prayer. Come down, would you please, to verse number 19. Paul's in prison. Look what he says. I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Through your what? Would you mark that in your Bible? Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Let me just ask the members of this church. I'm, I'm speaking by and large to the church family tonight. May I ask this church, how many of you would like to see uh, an even greater anointing and power and wisdom upon your pastor? How many of you would like to see that? Yes? All right, well, don't wait on better sermons. You be a better prayer. People say, we need better preaching. We need better praying. That's what we need. Watch this. You get better praying, you not only get better preaching, you get more out of the preaching that's already being done because God works on both ends. It's amazing. Oh, may this be a praying church. Do you know how churches move forward? On their knees. On their knees. Is this a praying church? I'm not asking, do you take prayer requests? Do you have a prayer list? Do you have a prayer line? Do you have a meeting called a prayer? I'm asking, is this really a praying church? Are the men and women and young people in this church people with great faith in God that just know God's hearing and answering prayer and we're bombarding heaven and believing God and seeing answers to prayer? I tell you, you let this church be a praying church and the people in this community will take notice of it. You can't promote that. God will promote you as we seek God. We are partners in fact, we're partners not just with each other. We're partners with Jesus in this. Did you know you actually have two prayer partners right now? They're both praying right now. You have one in heaven and one in your heart. According to Romans, the Holy Spirit is praying right now with groanings which cannot be uttered. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father praying for you. I can't think of two better prayer partners I'd rather have. In fact, I used to have an old, old uh, preacher used to say this. He said, actually, when you come and say, Father, you're actually coming to a prayer meeting that's already in progress. I like that, don't you? Because at this moment, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are communing. And when we come to prayer, what a privilege. We come into the throne room of Almighty God, the family room of the Father's house. And we're one. We're partnering together. We're agreeing together in prayer. When was the last time you said to a brother or sister in this church, I need you to pray? I need you to help me pray. When was the last time you said to somebody, let's stop right now and pray? Let's just pray together at this moment. This is the partnership God has put us in. And then there's a third thing. We're not only partners in faith and in prayer, we're partners in our desire. What is the desire of Paul? Paul said, I think if you'll pray, not only will I get out of jail, but I think the big thing here is that people are going to be saved. This is interesting to me, but Paul's number one prayer was not that God would open the prison cell. It was that God would open the hearts of the sinners. Maybe we need to change our prayers. What do you think? And instead of praying for better circumstances, maybe we need to be praying that through the circumstances, we can see a greater advancement for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow evening, I'm going to preach from Acts 16, and we'll do so again on Tuesday, both times. 
And you say, why are you telling us that? Well, so that you can really impress those preachers tomorrow night and say, I'm just in tune with the Lord. I think he's going to preach from Acts 16. No, that's not why I'm doing it. Acts 16 is directly linked to Philippians 1. Do you know what Acts 16 is? It's the record of Paul's ministry at Philippi. I mean, everything he's referencing here, they witnessed and saw in Acts chapter number 16. You read Acts 16 right before you go to bed. Read Acts 16. You know what you're going to find? A great open door for the gospel, people getting saved, Lydia getting saved, the jailer and his family getting saved, good things happening for the, for the cause of Jesus. And at the same time, the opposition of Satan. A demon-possessed person shows up. They get thrown in jail. I'm telling you, we're praying for ease. We need to stop praying for ease and start praying for the advancement of the gospel. Our aim should not be a more comfortable American way of life for us. It should be the salvation of lost sinners for all of eternity. We are partners in this. And then one more. Come to verse number 27. I love this. Come to the end the end of verse 27, he said, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Would you write down, please, somewhere that not only are we partakers and we're partners, but now we are to be participants. We have too many spectators in churches today. We come in, we plop down in our seat, and we go through the motions, but we're spectators. I want you to know somewhere God's people got to get off the bench and get in the game. And it's time. Let me just pause and tell you, I think Jesus is coming very soon. I don't know when. I may not make it home. You say, you really believe? I absolutely believe it. I believe before this particular trip of mine is done, someday I'll preach my last sermon, be in my last meeting. We'll have our last gospel opportunity, extend our last invitation. You'll have your last opportunity to pray for a lost soul, your, your final chance to speak to that person that you love. And Jesus is coming. I think it's time that we get out of ourselves and out of our rut and say, by the grace of God, I'm going to get involved in participating to get the gospel out. He said, we're striving together. For the faith of the gospel. There's a lot in that verse. Look at verse number 27. We participate by our life. He said, let your conversation be as it become of the gospel. In other words, the way you live should demonstrate the power of the gospel and the reality of the Christ that lives in you. We profess we know Jesus. Would anybody see Jesus by watching your life? Let me meddle just a moment. Is there anything in your life right now that would take away from the beauty of Jesus? There's a lot of ugly things in my life. Don't look at me so pious. You have them too. Because we're sinners. And you know what we need? Less of us, more of Jesus. Because there's any good thing in any of us, it sure must be Jesus. And he's beautiful. He's the altogether lovely one. But dear Lord, get all the junk out of my life. Every reaction that's fleshly, every word that's unkind, every bit of, uh, of spirit and impatience and, and things that are less than worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want my life to lift up the gospel. Gypsy Smith used to say God wrote five gospel records. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the believer. And then he said most people will never read the first four. He meant by that that lots of people who are not coming to a church building like this to listen to a preacher like me who will never even open the Bible and read the Bible are your living epistles, lone and read of all men. They're watching your life to see if there's anything of validity and substance in your life. And I'm going to tell you, in a world of hate right now, people are looking for a genuine love. In a world of confusion, people are looking for answers. There's never been a greater day for the gospel of Jesus Christ than the hour God has allowed us to live. I'm not sad God chose us to live near the end of the story. I'm glad God privileged us with this opportunity. Our lives must lift up the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27. It's not just our life. Keep reading. He said, whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. Our spirit, our spirit must demonstrate the gospel, the mercy of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the love of Jesus. And that's not weak, that's strong. Stand fast in one spirit. With one mind, our mind. There must be unity among the people of God. Remember, no schism, no division in the body. Can I tell you what brings oneness in a church? The gospel. <laughs> you know why that is? 
Because the gospel is so grand and glorious and amazing, it makes everything else look like it's pipsqueak small. Petty things and little things, preferential things, and somebody didn't get their way. Oh, look, next to the cross, whew, next to a bleeding Savior, there's just some things you don't argue about. There's just some things you don't even bring up when your eyes are on the Calvary. That's the gospel. That's what brings oneness. Somebody said, how do you get people in a church to agree, preacher? You ready for this? You don't. We're all different. We think different. You really think everybody in this room is going to agree on everything? Nonsense. That's never going to happen. Watch this. You don't have to agree with me, and I don't have to agree with you. We just all have to agree with God. And we can all meet there on the Word of God and say we're just all going to agree on Jesus. We're all going to agree on what the Lord wants. If you get that kind of agreement, I'm going to tell you what you got. Now you got true Christian fellowship. Now you got real oneness that will advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27 again. It's our life. It's our spirit. It's our mind. It's our effort striving together. There's work in this. It's labor. How many of you have ever preached a sermon in your life? Would you raise your hand? How many of you have ever preached a sermon? It is, it is work. It really is work. There's a, there's a physical aspect to it. There's mental. There's emotional. There's spiritual. And, uh, you know, I don't know how you are, Pastor, but after a, a Lord's Day, uh, preaching, teaching all day long, I'm, I'm pretty tired at the end of it. And sometimes you wonder why that is because it, there's labor in it. But please don't miss this. You may never preach a sermon, but there is a gospel work for every Christian to do. This is not just for the preachers. This is for all of God's people. This wasn't just for Paul. This was for the Philippians. We're striving together. This year, I've been marking weeks. I noticed your, your calendar thing in, in your office, marking weeks of your life. I never thought about doing that. That's a little overwhelming, you know. But I've been marking weeks this year every Sunday, the first day of the week. How many weeks are gone from the year? And this morning I posted 44 of 52 weeks are now gone. <laughs> Let that sink in just a minute. 44. Some of you think about Christmas. Stop that right now, all right? Somebody said, I got to get shopping. Forget that just a minute, all right? 44 of 52 weeks are gone. What did I do this week for the gospel's sake? In the 44 weeks of this year, how much of my work and labor has really been connected to what matters to Jesus? Maybe there's a better question. In the 45th week, what will I do for the gospel's sake? You can't go back and change any of that. But what shall I do tomorrow? What, what shall I give myself to this week? Striving together. And then look, please, at our aim for the faith of the gospel. Somebody said, I, I believe the Lord. That's not what the faith of the gospel is. It's a preacher talking to a bunch of Christians. What can he be talking about here? He wants others to be saved. He wants others to come to believe. He wants others to hear the gospel. He wants to see the great advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our great aim. We say we want to see people saved. If I ask right now, if I ask right now, how many of you want to see people saved? Everybody say, amen, preacher, amen. All right, who? Tell me a name. Who's on your prayer list? Who's on your heart? Who do you pray for before you go to bed at night? Who this week will you speak to? There's a man that lives not far from us. I've been praying for him, praying and praying and praying. He needs Jesus. And I was home this week for a couple of days, and I was out on the farm, out in the country, and he came by. And we got to chat, not, not an in-depth conversation. As he pulled away, I, God just prompted me again, pray, pray, seek the salvation of that that man, he needs Jesus. All right, who's on your heart? Who's on your mind? Look, people, we got to get specific about this thing. We got to get urgent about the thing. Do you remember when you first got saved? Couldn't wait to tell everybody, right? And most of us did more witnessing the first six months after we got saved than we have the rest of our Christian life combined. And somewhere we've let the wonder of it all wear off. And our eyes are on time and not eternity. Whew, dear Lord. Help me get back in the game. On offense and on defense, help me do what I can to stand firm for Jesus against the 
pushback of the enemy and to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. Because, friends, listen to me. Shortly, shortly, God's going to call time. It's going to be done. How many people live in Brookings? 24,000 people. Let's imagine. Now, stay with me just a second. I'm going somewhere. Let's imagine that we rented a big coliseum or we, or we put up a tent. Let's not do that in the middle of winter, but sometime when it's warm, we'll do that. Put up a big tent or rent some conference center or some, some big hall. And let's invite everybody to come hear the gospel. And just imagine that by the thousands they came. That by some means we could just get thousands of people to come. Somebody says, oh, that'd be a real victory. That'd be great. Let's imagine that on the first night somebody gets up and preaches the gospel, and on the first night 3,000 people get saved. How many of you think that's a church service you, you hope you didn't stay home for, right? Now, that's the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved? Now, wait a minute. Let's imagine on the second night 3,000 people get saved. And the third night... 3,000 people get saved. And the fourth night, 3,000 people get saved. How many of you think we got a good meeting going? Yes. By seven or eight nights, now theoretically, the whole population of this city could be brought to Jesus. I imagine that after two or three nights of that, the news media would show up, don't you think? And they'd be saying things and putting out headlines like they're bringing in the kingdom in Brookings, South Dakota. All kinds of things would be said. Some said, oh, preacher, that's what we need. That's what we need. We just need a big meeting and some preacher to come and, and God to really move and us to see people saved. And do you know that at the current world population, if we froze it, just stop it right now, and nobody's born and nobody dies, and we had 3,000 people saved every day at the current world population, it would take 5,000 years to evangelize this planet. Does anybody in this room think we have 5,000 years left before Jesus comes back? No. All right, so I got a crazy idea, and it's crazy, but just bear with me for a second, all right? Let's imagine we win one sinner to Jesus. This looks like a sinner. I'll pick on him, all right? Tell me your name. Ron? Ron? So let's imagine that Ron gets saved, discovers the glory of Jesus and the gospel. And this year, Ron says, you know what? I, I can't do everything, but I can do something. I can't win the world, but I, I think I can win somebody. This year, I'm going to go after one person for Jesus, just one. And in the next 12 months, Ron says, I'm going to try to bring somebody to Christ and teach them. Everybody look up there. See the impact? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever command. Just passing it on. I'm going to teach them what I've been taught. How many of you think it's reasonable that in the next 12 months, Ron could reach one person with the gospel? How many of you think that's reasonable? Okay, so, so Ron reaches another sinner. Here's another sinner. And your name is? Rich. I got all R's going here so far, don't we? So let's imagine that, that Ron wins rich to the Lord, disciples him, teach him the things of God. And these two guys, partners now in the gospel, they get excited about seeing people saved. They want other people to be saved. You want others saved, don't you? And you want others saved. And so they say, well, hey, let's pray together this year. In the next 12 months, let's just covenant together in this. We're going to pray together, work together, hold each other accountable, encourage each other. Let's both try to win somebody to the Lord. All right. So the second year, the two of them each reach two more. You think that'd be good? Each one reach one, right? So one becomes two, and now two becomes what, class? Four. Very good. And the next year, the four of them get together and say, we're all going to reach somebody. And so that year, the four reach four more. So that year, the four becomes what, church? Eight. And the next year, the eight get together and say, we're going to win somebody, and this seems to be working. So uh, we can't do everything, but eight of us can each reach one more. And that year, eight becomes what, please? Sixteen. And then the next year, sixteen becomes what? 32, and the next year, 32 becomes what? 64, and I'll stop there. Some of you are reaching for your calculator. Don't, don't do that, all right? Somebody say, well, that's nice, preacher. I mean, that's a nice little program you got going there. That sounds really nifty, and that, that might work somewhere. No, I think you missed the whole point. Do you know the current world population, if nobody was born and nobody died, and we did it that way, 
you could evangelize this world in 35 years. Somebody said, that's not possible. You better run the numbers again. Would you like to know the difference? I need everybody to lift your head and look at me just a minute. I'm going to show you the difference right here. It's the difference between this and this. The first is addition. The second is multiplication. In the first, we're seeing how many people we can add to a building, add to a meeting, add for one preacher to preach the gospel to them. In the second, we're turning it inside out, and instead of just trying to add them to our thing, we're multiplying the witnesses, multiplying the workforce, multiplying the gospel laborers. This is the principle of multiplication of work. Now, let me tell you the really exciting thing. The first way is our American form of Christianity. That's the way we think it's got to be done. And the second way, somebody said, who came up with that? Jesus did. Jesus came up with that one. Now, that's not my program. That's exactly what Jesus did with 12 disciples. One of them turned out to be a Judas, and 11 of them, watch this, turned the world upside down with the gospel. And I just came to tell you tonight, if 11 excuse me, ignorant, uneducated, simple, humble fishermen could be used of God to get the gospel to the known world in 30 years from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, don't you think that with all of our means and media and resources and believers, we could reach the world with a gospel if we'd stop trying to do it our way and begin to do it God's way? This is what we all must get back to. It is the offense and the defense of the gospel. Would you bow your head with me all around the room for just a moment? Now, I, I'm preaching straight to you tonight. I mean, I'm just, I'm being very blunt for a reason because there's no sense beating around the bush and playing games about this. Either we're going to do what God says or we're not. Either we're going to obey the Lord and see God use us or we're just going to, you know, ride the train to heaven, coast our way into glory. Glad we're going. How many of you know you're saved and you're glad about it? Would you raise your hand towards the Lord? Amen. I must ask this question. I don't want to assume. Is there somebody here tonight that would say, Preacher, I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know for certain about my own relationship to God and eternal destiny. But I know this, I want to be saved and I need Jesus. Preacher, I'm not certain of my soul's salvation. Pray for me. Would you raise your hand? I see you. Do you believe Jesus died for you? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Are you willing to put your faith in it? I'm going to ask you to do something, all right? Pastor, would you mind walking right to the back, right back there? If you're serious about getting saved, I want you to meet the pastor at the back door right there and let him have somebody take a Bible and show you how to get it settled tonight. Amen. Anybody else like that? You say, I really want to be saved. I I don't want to be lost, go to hell forever. God, help me. Then best I can tell, I'm speaking to Christians. So let's just get down to business, shall we? Let's do some business with God. Let's start on the negative side. How many of the Lord's people would say, Preacher, I'm just going to confess tonight that I have not been living or laboring like I should to get the gospel out, either either." My lifestyle, for some reason, has hindered that, or I'm living the Christian life, but I just haven't been working at it, really working at it like I used to and with a passion that I used to have, and I'm convicted. Remember, him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is what? Sin. So let's confess our sin tonight. How many Christians would just say, I'm guilty, and God's convicted me? Would you raise your hand high in the air with mine right now? you say, that's me. All right, that's most of us. I want you to talk to God about it right now. I'm not even asking you to get out of your seat. I just want you to talk to God right now and ask the Lord, Lord, forgive me. Recommit yourself to it. Recommit yourself to the gospel. Whew. Dear Lord, what would happen? What would happen if just... Those of us in this room, Jesus, started really living passionate about the gospel this week. What could you stir up in this town? Sweet Spirit of God, what could you set in motion on the workplace and on the school campus? Show us, Lord. Start it in us, Lord. Please.
please. Let's go to the positive side of this. What are we going to do about it? Anything going to change? How many believers in this room, now hear me carefully before you raise your hand. Better not to make a vow, but make a vow and break it. How many Christians in this room tonight would take a challenge? Say, what's a challenge, preacher? I'm going to ask how many Christians in this room tonight would take a challenge and make a commitment that in the next seven days, that means between now and next Sunday night, you will seek to give the gospel to at least one person. Now, you may give the gospel to many people, and you may say, well, I don't know what to say. Just tell them how you got saved. Give your gospel testimony. How many Christians will say, preacher, if God will help me, and he will, in the next seven days, I'm going to pray for a divine appointment. I'm going to ask God to use me, and I'm going to commit to tell at least one person about Jesus between now and next Sunday. I want you to raise your hand big and high in the air with mine right now, would you please? Hold it high. Would you tell the Lord that right now? Just tell him right now in your own words and from your heart. Lord, I'm, I'm joining the team tonight. Use me. Use me. Lord, use me. I don't want to just preach about this, talk to others about this. Give me some gospel appointments this week. Help me be awake, <laughs> spiritually awake, alert. Help me not rush past sinners that need Jesus. Oh, give us the heart of God again. And work in the heart of this church. Would you lift your head and look at me for a moment? Didn't say amen because here's what we're going to do. I'm standing here thinking, I got a text this afternoon, this afternoon from a man I was with a year ago this week. I know that because it was the same week my friend was killed. I know exactly where I was. I know exactly what church I was in, church I'd never been in before in Iowa. There was a man there who drove me back and forth to the meetings, kind man. He sent me a text today, just out of the blue. It was a picture of him with three people, and they're all just beaming from ear to ear, a man and two ladies. And he said, I just thought you'd like to know, preacher, that this past week I had the privilege to lead all three of these people to the Lord. And he said, this man came to church with me today, getting baptized next week. And he said, I just I thought you'd be happy to know him. And I thought to myself, if the only good thing that happens in meetings is what happens when the preacher's there, then we've made it about a man and not about God. You know what I'm praying? I'm praying that some big stuff will be set in motion this week for this church and for God's work in this part of the world. Wouldn't it be great to see a real spiritual awakening in this whole region? It must begin with gospel Christians. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to have any music tonight so that everybody can participate, and the only sound in the room will be the sound of people talking to each other and praying. Here's what we're going to do. If you have little children, I want you to keep them with you. Uh, but if you're young people, children are old enough to know and love Jesus, they can participate in this. But here's what I'm going to ask. In a moment, I'm going to ask every Christian man in this room to find another Christian man. And I'm going to ask every Christian lady to find another Christian lady. And I'm going to ask you to do two things. Number one, I want you to tell that friend, and it may even be somebody you don't know well, that's fine. But I want you to tell that person how you came to know Jesus. The short version. If your partner starts with their birth, you're in trouble, all right? So just, I'm talking about like the 92nd version. This is how I got saved and what Jesus has done in my heart, what the Lord means to me. Let the redeemed of the Lord, what? Yeah, and somebody says, why are you doing this? I'll tell you why. Because you won't do it out there if you won't do it in here. So we're going to prime the pump a little bit and practice tonight. Be good for all of us. And then, once you've both shared your gospel testimony, I'd like you to share with that person you're with somebody you're praying for to be saved. And if you don't have anybody, don't be embarrassed by that. Just tell them, I'm praying God will give me somebody. I don't know his name yet. I don't know who she is, but I'm praying this week for a divine appointment. 
And then I'm going to ask the two of you to have a prayer together. One of you can open the prayer. The other one can close the prayer, however you choose to do it. Uh, but for a few moments, look, this is a fellowship in the gospel right here. That's what we are. We're partners, right? We're partakers. We're participants. I'm going to ask you to find a gospel partner in here. Let's talk to one another about the Lord, and then let's talk to God together. Let's, let's pray for the salvation of souls. Do you believe we could be in here right now and a thousand miles from here, God could be answering our prayer and saving somebody. Do you believe that? I do too. And I want us to pray with that kind of faith tonight. And after a few moments, I'll close the prayer and we'll be on our way. But I'm going to ask you to be a participant in here tonight. And let's speak of our Jesus. And then let's talk to him for a few moments. Would you stand with me all around the room just as quickly as you can? Now, don't be embarrassed about it. You'll have to leave your seat to do it. So leave where you are and find you somebody. And if you want to kneel together... Stand together, sit together. We're making the whole place one big altar tonight, so that's fine. But find you somebody.